0: called One Tree, and again, a fitting song, The Roots and Branches of One Tree, and uh, with that, I think we're going to bring on our guests here. So let me tell you a little bit about what's going on tonight. Uh, Barbara Tedlock, Ph.D., is the granddaughter of an Ojibwe midwife and an herbalist, was trained and initiated as a shaman by the Kicha Maya of Highland, Guatemala. She's currently Distinguished Professor of Anthropology at the State University of New York of Buffalo. She's the author of a number of books, uh, all kinds of essays. Uh, She spends a lot of time in Buffalo, New York, and sort of splits it between there and Santa Fe. And uh, that's sort of why she's uh, here with her husband right now, uh, on their way from one place to the other. But uh, uh, Dennis, uh, uh, also a Ph.D. anthropologist, distinguished uh, professor, also at the State University of New York. Um, The chair of English department, I want to say, too. I know he's an English professor as well. Uh, We'll let him clarify that in a minute, though. Uh, A wonderful artist, uh, the author of a host of books, including the seminal work on the translation of the Mayan Popol Vuh, uh, uh, the definitive edition of the Mayan Book of the Dawn of Life and the Glories of Gods and Kings. Uh, Dennis also has a new book, which is either released or about to be released, uh, called Rabinal Akchi: Dialogue, Dance, and History in a Mayan Play. Uh, based on a script written in the 16th century. And uh, Dennis has a wonderful story about that. But uh, between, the, between the two of them, they've received more awards than I can uh, mention here. It, it would take all night just to read their resumes, accomplishments, all that stuff. Uh, but it's not just the academic and intellectual concerns that attracted me to uh, to the TEDlocks It's also the experiential side of their story, and I think that's where it really gets cool. Um, so uh, the more I talk about them, the smaller and smaller I feel. <laughs> so, uh, so before I disappear entirely, uh, let's welcome the doctors, Tedlock, Barbara, and Dennis. Thanks so much for being with me tonight, and uh, it means a whole lot to me, and I've got a lot of listeners who've been looking forward to this program. So uh, uh, thanks for being here. Welcome. Thanks. Hey. Great to be here. All right. Yeah, we... Um, uh, we were talking a little bit off the air, Dennis, about uh, 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 about this story that I just read, this idea of Eve. And um, uh, we decided that it might be a, a nice way to start things off to talk a little bit about the Mayan tradition and the ancient uh, creation stories of the Maya. and uh, because uh, it actually is directly related to much of the stuff that uh, that Barbara, has gotten involved with and written about, and um, I think it's a great way to start. So maybe you could uh, just jump in anytime you like, and we'll uh, and we'll get going. Okay, the mitochondrial
1: story is, is a kind of resonance here that they're they're being able to trace out the story of the early, early humans through a, a, a kind of DNA that's traceable through. That's transmitted through women. Mayas, uh, when they ask the, story, ask the question, where where does it all stop if you try to trace everybody back? This kind of chicken-and-egg story, or where uh, they, they always seem to to uh, to end up with a woman at the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. In the in the in the, uh, the first four women. Uh, actually had the names of patrilineages. That's kind of a strange way to solve the riddle of how the patrilineages begin get underway and the fact is they were all founded by women and then after that inheritance was traced through men Mm -hmm. and and the way that all comes down to the present day is is, uh, you know, by now they've been hearing Bible stories for about 400 years and they have their own version of the story of even Adam as they always mm-hmm. Eva, 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 um, they almost talk about it as if they were two of them were one person and uh, so in the beginning they, they go ahead and tell the story uh, the Genesis way at the start so, uh, so Adam is made it was Jesus who made Adam never mind you know, the problems about that. And uh, Adam was kind of lonely, but Jesus was kind of dense about noticing that Adam had a problem. And Mary, who of course was also there, said, uh, look, look uh, Adam Adam doesn't look happy. And Jesus says, well, he all right to, looks alright to me. And he says, no, no. She says, he's, he's very, very sad, very sad he says, well, maybe I should preach to him. And she says, no, 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 preaching is not what he needs. He needs a companion. And Eve was her idea. And so um, they went ahead and made Eve while Adam was asleep. When he woke up, he was scared to death and, and ran off several hundred yards. Uh, and she says, Eve says, Adam, Adam, come back here. I'm your companion. I'm your companion. You know, this, the whole... The way the story goes is, is very, uh, very different uh, kind of reading of the situation. So finally she coaxes Adam back to her. And then she says, uh, they make a kind of a contract with each other. And uh, she says, Adam, you're going to work with a pickaxe and a hoe and you're going to be a farmer. And he says to her, and you're going to to uh, have loom and you're going to make my clothes. Mm. And so they made a social contract with each other. And, and that's about as different from Genesis you can get where God gives all the orders. Instead we have the, here the first two humans are figuring out a deal between themselves. Mm, interesting. And remember Eve wasn't given a, a job at all. She was told she was going to bear children and do so in pain and Adam was going to work. Mm-hmm with, the, with the, the Mayan story, they figure out what uh, what they're gonna, each of them is going to do and what's interesting about that loom is uh, the Mayans see the loom as the prototypical machine and that really in a, in a funny kind of way, machines are a woman's thing. So that's the way that story. Goes. All right.
0: So it's a, so it, so it's much more of a cooperative thing that we had going on, at least the way the story pans out, than we have this the, the typical patriarchal story that we that that comes down through our typical cultural story. Right. All right.
2: All right.
0: Well, uh, this idea of woman uh, as the beginning does seem to be backwards. It's, I, mean, I mean, it's. It, it changes the whole psychology even when you mentioned it first when you said Eve and Adam just the way when people hear that it just sort of tweaks them a little bit where it just doesn't even uh, it, it has a different uh, uh, meaning when you say it that way I think it's similar to if you would say our mother in heaven as opposed to our father something like so, something like that which uh, may, maybe is a decent analogy Barbara maybe you could add something to
3: yeah Um uh from my research uh, among uh, women who are healers and shamans, and my reading of the books uh, has made me realize that uh, women were the original uh, shamans, and uh, the earliest remains that we find um, of shamans, their bones, uh, are female, they're not male. And we now have a number of Paleolithic graves of the earliest shamans, and in all cases, the very oldest ones are are women and this uh, it was sort of a surprise to the scholars and the the archaeologists because the notion would be that um, shamans are men and there's something about the word itself
2: Hmm. shaman
3: m-a-n yeah and some uh, people thought this would be a masculine profession and they disqualified women from it and part of how that happened was that um, Because uh, women shamans uh, have a lot of empirical knowledge, particularly of herbs and midwifery, they decided they were only midwives and herbalists, and they they didn't have any spiritual healing ability,
4: Hmm. Uh,
3: just pragmatics, whereas the men, they felt um were simply shamans and they didn't they didn't know anything that was that was empirical so there was a, a lot of bias in the early research and it was partly because the earliest uh, paleo anthropologists the earliest archaeologists were men it was a masculine field and um also we didn't have the kind of uh, knowledge of how to sex bones that we have today mm-hmm. that's new knowledge really And that's that's important
0: knowledge. So there was was classification that was being done wrong, in other words.
3: Yeah, and it was was being done on size and weight and shape and various Mm -hmm. things. And we had the most extraordinary situation of 80% of all the bones that were found in burials were male. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that's not possible, (laughs) but yet that's what was happening. So things were being... So a woman who had um, big bones... Uh, was automatically classed as a male, right. and that you know, so that's the kind of problem that we had in in our science.
0: Well, the uh, the idea of uh, of women as shaman, women as healer, women as uh, any of those particular ideas that that we think of as male, mm-hmm. um, it, it it blows me away actually, because when I read your book, uh, I was I was thinking of uh, Iliad's book, of course, the, the the what most people would consider sort of the, the, the seminal work in that field, and he gives maybe less than a page for sure uh, to uh, to the feminine side of this whole phenomenon, and in fact it turns out that much of what he reported uh, it, he actually changed the, the genders of uh, of, of uh, shaman that were identified as women, perhaps, and that uh, and he recorded them as men. Is that uh, a reasonable statement?
3: Right. Um, I, in doing my research, I had read his famous book, Shamanism, years ago right. when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley. Hmm. It was a hip book to read right, right. in the 60s. And, uh, you know, I put it away. And when I started to do my project, I thought, well, I better look at that book again. And then I started thinking wait a minute where are all the women here there were only huh. six women mentioned out of 300 shamans who were profiled in any way at all and so then i i went back to his sources and started reading and realizing that there were, had been a lot of um, gender shifting huh. that he actually it, it was a description of a woman shaman in the original source and he said he uh for this particular shaman and it, it was a sort of remarkable thing and then when i Also looked closely, I discovered that the emphasis was on death, uh, dying, rebirth, uh, and there was nothing about birthing. And I thought, isn't that strange? And that's because the whole notion of women and midwifery uh, that was removed from shamanism. So shamanism was uh, from death to rebirth, and you've lost the other part of the process. Mm. So I think we lost half when we lost women, we lost half of the research at least half of the research uh half of what's interesting
4: Hmm.
3: so uh well, the thing to remember about eliot is he was a novelist and he wrote a boiler in order to make money and that was the book called shamanism Mm -hmm. because uh, novels you can't get paid you can't do an advance on a novel you have to write the whole thing and then you you get money Whereas a uh, piece of uh, non-fiction you can get in advance. So he needed, in a, he needed money to live on. And so he got this advance to write this book. And he'd never met a shaman in his life. Actually, he never met one in his entire life. <laughs> so it was all sources right. uh, and that he was pulling together from many different languages.
0: Wow, interesting. And, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, to uh, the folks out there listening, one of the reasons that I was so interested in talking with you is that there's much more than just this imp- empirical side. In other words, uh, you can learn, uh, and you can learn plenty from reading books and from talking to people and from hearsay or whatever, but there's really no substitute from, uh, for getting out there and, and, and finding out for yourself uh, what the deal is. And you and, you and Dennis have, uh, have done that for from, from many years now. And, hey, it's top of the hour. Let me do a quick ID here and get this out of the way. You're listening to KOPN 89.5 FM. And this is Radio Orbit every Monday from 11 until 2. And uh, this is Mike Hagan. My guests tonight are Dr. Barbara and Dr. Dennis Tedlock. They're uh, kind enough to uh, get up in the middle of the evening here, the middle of the night, and spend a couple, uh, couple hours talking about some really interesting stuff with me uh, and with you guys out there. So I hope you appreciate it. And don't forget, it is Pledge Drive week, uh, Pledge Drive night here at Radio Orbit, and you can call me at 573 874 5676 895 5676 if you're interested in keeping this program on the air, and uh, I'll try to bribe you because I have some really cool stuff to give away too, so any pledges are going to get really uh, uh, some cool little gifts to go along. Plus, don't forget the invite to my fancy party that's coming up uh, July 25th, uh, the one-year anniversary party. You get to come to it. You can't come if you don't uh, pledge. So uh, do that, please. Okay? All right. uh, Back to our guests here. Now, Barbara, I've spent some time uh, and I I should address both of you at the same time. I'm addressing both of you when when we're talking about this and I don't mind if we just go back and forth uh, uh, as as, as you guys feel uh, necessary. But when I was in France, um, I did some exploring in one of of the old um, uh, uh, caves there that had some, some paintings and things uh, very interesting stuff and I wanted to ask you about uh, the feminine depictions in the caves uh, I actually thought that I saw something that I was like that looked like a female figure to me maybe but of course at the time I didn't have a frame of reference to really know what I was looking at to be honest but um, I guess I just wonder what you know about that
3: Yeah, there's a very famous cave uh, in Petchmurl. And uh, in this cave, there are six images of pregnant women who are um, changing, shape-shifting into birds. And it's very, very interesting. Also in that cave are smaller footprints and handprints, uh, both women's size and babies. So there's a notion that this cave was probably visited by women Uh, bringing their children along, and that they did the artwork themselves. The art is actually... It's carved and painted in the ceiling and all around the walls. And what was fun about the cave, it was discovered back in 1904, uh, and it was discovered by a man, and this guy thought that they were buffalo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I look at the... And I have a a picture of it, uh, uh, an actual drawing in my book, and I look at it and I think, How can a pregnant woman be mistaken for a buffalo? I just don't get it, you know. And the the heads on them are uh, profiled and they have like a beak like a bird. You know, I mean, how how would they not see this, you see? So what what people use in their books are um, guys who are uh, either standing and dancing with animals with antlers on and with erect penises Mm -hmm. or they're lying Mm -hmm. on the ground. Uh, and those are what are in most books on shamanism. Right. But I learned something really interesting in Mongolia, and that is antlers aren't necessarily just on males. Uh, in in terms of a reindeer, the largest racks uh, of reindeers uh, are uh, worn by women, female reindeers. And <laughs> these deer uh, uh, are the leaders of the herd. And they have, like, 18 times and whatnot. They're just enormous. Wow. Racks. So now when I see antlers on a shaman, I don't think it's a masculine thing anymore.
0: Right. It's a shamanistic thing. It's
3: a shamanistic thing. Right. Though. So it could be masculine. It could be feminine. Hmm, because okay. in uh, the reindeer, both the men and the women, both the males and the females, have antlers. But the biggest sets are the women the women who lead the herds. Interesting. Which I, I would never have known if I hadn't gone to Mongolia
0: outrageous i know it's a well you know so much of this stuff i think gets (laughs) you see what you're looking for in other words you mentioned that you know how could how could a bison be or how could a, a, a pregnant woman be interpreted as a bison or something well it's you know i read something earlier today about how you know supposedly when the when the when the ships from europe showed up off the coasts of uh you know South America that they couldn't even see them because they had no it didn't match anything in their internal dictionary so to speak and so uh, I'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not but the, the bottom line is I think that we've, we've all had, had experiences of perception that's just wrong based upon uh, uh, a uh, um, maybe a cultural bias or maybe something that we learned as children or we were indoctrinated through school and I imagine that the that much of this early work was jaded by those same sort of ideas
3: right our educations do affect us incredibly mm-hmm. and our miseducation, education you know affects us even more
0: isn't that the truth isn't that the truth well um let's see here well let me ask you another question then since we're still talking about uh the feminine side of shamanism there's a physiology also involved here uh, that, that needs to be talked about. It turns out that, that, that the feminine physiology actually has uh, its own uh, place in this whole thing. Maybe you could explain some of those things to us.
3: Right. Women's brains are quite different than men's brains. And uh, there was a big fad for, for talking about hemispheric, uh, right hemisphere versus left. You know, one side is supposed to be logical, the other is supposed to be more artistic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was a whole bunch of books about that. Uh, it was it was deep into popular culture well the latest research has shown that the real difference uh, is between men's brains and women's brains and it has to do with connectivity there are more uh, actual connections between the hemispheres women have than men and uh, this is a, a remarkable find and what it tells you is that women have less uh, uh, emphasis on one side or the other. They put together the two sides mm. of the hemispheres. Uh, and this is a rather major thing because it, it also indicates that women uh, are, are able to um, go into trance uh, easier. There's been some uh, really? research that's, that's been done. And uh-huh. it's partly because women are operating with both sides of their hemispheres together at the same time. So, because women are very, kind of, um, made to trance, no no wonder uh, that trancing is found everywhere and that women are involved in ecstasy and Hmm. and, uh, both both traveling out of the body and uh, incorporating spirits into the body, both having things come in and uh, go out of the body.
0: Wow. Well, you know... um... One of my one of my early interests in uh, uh, in native cultures and indigenous cultures to begin with was through Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. and he was one of the few guys that actually did make mention yes. of women and you know and fitting because he was a wonderful man and he was a guy that pretty much said it the way he saw it I think right. and uh, anyway, I wanted to mention that only because I, I played a little piece of uh, one of his uh, interviews with Bill Moyers last week and it was sort of. I hadn't heard it for a long time, and when I listened to it, uh, it was a piece that's called "Love and the Goddess," and uh, I did it for Mother's Day. But I didn't realize how much he went into the feminine in that piece. I hadn't heard it that way before, and it was fantastic. So, I just wanted to mention him.
3: Well, I really like his work, and and I mentioned a couple different places in my book. I really, I mean, he's he couldn't be more different from Eliade. Gosh,
0: yeah, and still a man. I I mean, it's it's weird though how how all of that stuff uh, manifests differently in different people. And I guess there's, if we find it, there's feminine and masculine in all of us, maybe. And, oh,
3: there uh, is. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping that people recognize, that men recognize that they have a feminine dimension and women have a masculine dimension. And that's perfectly fine. That's good.
0: Right. I mean, it's balance, one of these things. that, If, if anything come, came across from, uh, from your book, and there was another wonderful example you made about this, the, this sort of myth of the, of the hunter uh, shaman, that, uh, and again, this could only be a man, and you, and you, you bring out uh, some...
3: Uh, Women hunters.
0: Yeah, some, and, and some, some very convincing evidence that this was a real deal. Now, uh, something else I want to mention uh, to the listeners out there. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with, with uh, either of my, my guests, well, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, go out there and uh, get on one of your search engines and just put in uh, Barbara Tedlock or Dennis Tedlock, and you will find out uh, who they are, and and, uh, and just by the, uh, by the depth of, of work that they've done in the past, uh, you should come uh, to a certain level of respect for them. Uh, but the book itself, Barbara's book in particular, is very well documented, heavily researched. Uh, everything is... Uh, uh, clearly laid out uh, um, as far as uh, where the information came from when she references other sources, and it is just a stunner. I mean, there is stuff in here that uh, uh, that needs to be said for sure, um, but uh, but stuff that a lot of people have no idea even exists, and, and uh, men and women alike. Uh, just in talking to people over the last few weeks about this program, I found just as much interest in men. As I found in women, I don't know what you've. Yeah,
3: I've found. found that too. I've I've done a number of book signings and well, not in different in different parts of the country, and I thought I wrote the book basically for women, but I've discovered that my audience is almost equal. Uh, mm. When when guys come and they come alone, they they're not with a woman. They come alone, like I I did a book signing in Buffalo, and I met a lot of guys who just came out by themselves, loved the book, and. Are interested in the feminine dimension. They, they just, you know, and they're not ashamed. They're not weird. They're, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. It, it, I don't know. Maybe it's. Uh, as a, as a guy, you know, I mean, as as a man who's trying to deal with this stuff on on my own, uh, it's. It's sort of welcome. I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, it's like. It's, it's welcome. You you have. It doesn't mean you're gay or you're this or you're that or whatever. It just means that it's. I mean, there's many parts of us that we hide and that we repress and stuff, and maybe most exactly. of it's culturally driven or whatever, but uh, that stuff's not uh, to be hidden. It's to be embraced, and it's what makes us full, I think, and that's what I'm learning. The more I embrace it, the better my life seems to get. So, I mean, exactly. you know, as a layman, I'm saying it's works. it works. It seems to be
4: exactly. working. Right.
3: <laughs> so. One of the guys said to me i i'm buying this book because i want to really understand the feminine in myself and mm. in my friends he said the feminine is very important he says the masculine is what's gotten us into war and all these other things mm. i want to work with the feminine side and mm. I, you know i was sort of stunned it's very nice
0: yeah it's, uh, that's that's welcome news it's good to hear that there are uh, uh that there are some guys out there that are thinking like that now and, and hope hopefully more than we know hopefully more than we know because you know, uh, and we may be getting off track here, but but, but maybe not, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think about what it means to be a man, you know. I mean, and, and f- frankly, my idea of what it means to be a man these days probably doesn't jive with most ideas in this country, at least, of what a man is supposed to be. And in my arrogance, I think that I'm right <laughs> and that there's much more to it. Than just uh, being the stereotypical uh, picture that we get as you know interested in nothing other than sports and big boobs and uh, beer and, uh, and 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 the, and the utter lack of of, of intellectual uh, activity and there's nothing wrong with having fun and I enjoy myself thoroughly when I have the opportunity to uh, but. Again, this idea of these other sides that have been lost, bringing them back for balance, I think, is where, what this is all about. And, again, that's what came through so strongly in your book. Great. That's yeah, I mean, you weren't, yeah. and, and uh, again, for people out there, Barbara, she's, she doesn't, it's not, a, it's not a man-hating book. It's not no, a, yeah. she's not slamming men. What she's doing is showing that there's this place for right. both of us and an equal place that's much more equal than any of us ever even thought. Uh, maybe, Barbara, talk a little bit about this hunter uh, idea. That, that's going to blow people away, that women were actually out there hunting and not just gathering
3: yes. pebbles
0: off the ground. And
3: There was this whole idea of man the hunter and woman, uh, and that sort of dominated the literature for many years up through, ni- like, 1970. And then all of a sudden there appeared woman the gatherer. So man was the hunter and woman was the gatherer. And then scholars began to realize that most of the food, most of the calories came from the gathering, did not come from the hunting. And uh, so they got interested in, in that. But what they lost out on was the fact that uh, hunting was done by women as well as men and gathering is done by men as well as women. Right. So, uh, balance, yeah. so it, it, it's a fascinating thing where you, you separated the hunting activity altogether from women and this is just not the case hmm. in many, many parts of the world. Uh, women are hunters. And what's fun is that now in Canada and the U.S., if you look at these hunting magazines, <laughs> you will discover mm-hmm. uh, women are buying them, and the licenses uh, are now bought by 25% of the people who buy licenses to hunt deer are female.
0: Interesting. And
3: that, to me, is enormous.
0: Oh, that is a huge thing. That's
3: a huge difference.
0: And tell me a little bit about the psychology of, Of of women versus the psychology of men, maybe in a hunting situation, is there more of a reverence there, is there more of a respect for the animal, is there more, is it, in other words, again, this is a stereotypical response, but my idea is that most men go out just to kill things for fun,
3: or to get a trophy, yeah, yeah,
0: get a rush out of it, whatever. Yeah,
3: the women who've been interviewed who are are really into hunting. they say that guys are looking for trophies and they're looking mm-hmm. for that sort of thing and they're not that interested in the trophy uh they're they're interested in using every part of the animal mm-hmm. and they they actually they make uh gloves from the hive they, d- they do e- they use everything mm-hmm. and they're interested in in the meat now not that guys aren't interested in the meat they're interested in the meat sure. also uh, but women have a feeling that they, they share a reverence. And in hunting, you know, they take a life, but they, they bless the animal and, mm. and whatnot. Now, not that there aren't guys who don't do that, because too. There are. are.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, but women bring a different, uh, a different approach to it.
0: Well, it makes me think of this idea of um, thinking of something as a bow as opposed to an it. And I think again, it changes your whole psychology of the way you, you act, think, look when you when you when you change those two words. And maybe it's something of the bow that the woman sees in the animal and, and has that innate respect
4: exactly.
0: and reverence for it. Because, uh, and you know, I want to. I'd, I'd like to ask um, uh, Dennis a, a question with regard to language. While while uh, while we're while we're at this, I, I've. We've been talking about hunting and gathering and, and how uh, men and women both apparently were involved in, in, uh, in both sides of that. It wasn't uh, purely men as hunter and women as gatherer. It was sort of a combination of both. Uh, women were also hunters. Men were gatherers. And my understanding, or at least, I mean, I know language is just this mystery anyway to me. I mean, I think it's just amazing. It's it's close to a miracle as I can imagine happening on this planet. but. Um, I've read stories that language you know, evolved primarily with the men through these hunting organizations and then I've read uh, rebuttals of that saying no, the women had to categorize all of the different plants and this sort of thing, so therefore language developed much more strongly in those areas. And I guess I'm sort of curious as with someone with your linguistic knowledge, what's your take on the, on the language thing as far as that goes?
1: Well, I belong to the school of thought that sees language as fundamentally dialogical. Uh, There's an older school of thought that's looking for, uh, that used to think that it could figure out what the original language looked like, sort of on the same model as the tracing the mitochondrial DNA all the way back. There was some idea of finding that original language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and, and thinking of language as something that's sitting there once it's developed, somehow it's sitting there in the brain, ready to be used. But language changes all the time. It changes between people. Mm. We don't. Uh, we we say new things when we talk to each other. Uh, it's it's really a fundamentally social thing that exists between people. So I would rather see language thought of as, as originating in a conversation, mm. not in some one. Uh, not not uh, some uh, one uh, mm-hmm. masculine uh, like God talking to himself mm-hmm. at the beginning of Genesis mm-hmm. or talking to no one in particular. you got to have a dialogue. My minds Ma- tell the story of the beginning of the world that the same, same way. The gods had to discuss what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. So there had to be at least two of them, right. for, for starters. So
4: uh,
1: I would say language got to be as complex as it, as it did, and probably all that happened pretty fast because it was developed between men and women, not not that it was uh, more with the men and hunting or with women and the gathering, but uh, in there having all these things to talk about, back and forth, different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that's more the way I would. I would say it, languages language between people.
0: Right, 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 right. And that makes perfect sense. Again, this idea, gosh, you know, it's it's almost like at every step you take, you get caught up in this gender thing. And it's like, okay, well, I don't, okay, I, I can I can take the, the hunter-gatherer thing and now I can make that okay for both of them. And now, okay, well then what do I do with language? Okay, now I can make language okay for both of them to have done together. And then I go to well, maybe this is, it seems like that is the trend, is that, uh, and gosh, have we gone wrong that with, the, with this separation, then, that we have. Uh, and,
3: and competition between them. And
0: competition.
3: Instead of cooperation or wanting to talk about them.
2: Right.
0: And certainly, uh, uh, I think we're not saying that men and women are the same. We're not. I mean, we are physiologically different. We have different, there are certain things that women are more capable of doing than men, and I think and vice versa in certain areas. But uh, but apparently, for these fundamental things, we're all capable of.
3: Like giving birth. That's the big difference exactly. between women and men. Right, right. And that's a really important difference.
0: Yeah, B. I mean, I mean, without that, where are we, right? I mean, woman is life. Woman is... Th- these stories of... Uh,
2: uh, uh,
0: when when a, when a young girl for example in an in indigenous culture uh, goes through her first change of life and she begins to menstruate for the fir- for the first time this in our culture is looked well first of all the girls are scared of it in many cases because it's looked down upon and, and stigmatized so badly but not only that it's it seems to me that again there's there there's no reverence for what it really means. I mean, because now, man, this girl is now a woman. She is now the vehicle of life. She is now uh, capable of, you know, bringing a woman is life. And so in, in these cultures that you are familiar with, they do something completely different. Uh, how do they handle their, their, their young girls when they come to these sort of
3: places? They have a wonderful the- party for them women welcome them into the the sisterhood, the motherhood, and uh, they have different rituals in different cultures, uh, but it's considered positive. And at the very root of feminine forms of shamanism is blood, blood magic, blood Mm. ritual, and the recognition of the blood of birthing and the blood of menstruation as being positive, being sources for power. Uh, mm. and uh, being uh, not something negative. And it's not that you are sick during your period or that you're weak or any of that, but that you're stronger. And they talk about how you, there's more going on with you uh, and that this is a wonderful thing that you've now become old enough that you could have a child and... Uh, this is just terrific. You know, they also recognize and accept uh, the menopause when you can no longer
4: mm.
3: uh, do that. They don't consider that to be terrible. Right. Uh, and they don't uh, talk about PMS and all of these right. medical problems. Right. We, we seem to have medical problems about normal things <laughs> and I don't know why we've done this to ourselves <clears throat> as a society. Uh, because it's not necessary to Mm -hmm. have medical problems. But it is, you have problems connected to things that you're frightened of, that you have bad uh, emotional association to, and that they're stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's why there's so many problems.
0: And then they create, they manifest themselves. Exactly. Out of those things.
3: Out of those fears and out Mm. of those negative uh, sorts of things. Instead of saying that they're really positive and that they are the source of power, and strength and uh, that they're very important things.
2: Right, right, right. Well,
0: it's, uh, all of it is just uh, striking stuff. And so this, we'll, we'll have to talk a little bit more about the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, well, let's take a break here. We're gonna take a break. And we'll come back in a minute. But we'll, I wanna talk more about um, this idea of speaking of the blood, that was something that actually blew me away and uh and that is something that i think maybe you guys could talk about again from an experiential side and we'll start to talk a little bit yeah. more about what was going on when you guys were learning this stuff and how it all came to and I, and I also want to talk about uh and if, if i pronounce her name wrong i apologize but uh, uh by,
3: bayar, bayar
0: adun yes odon
3: bayar, Odun.
0: bayar Odun. Right. Uh a fantastic story maybe we can share that a little bit later as well Um, Okay, you guys, uh, this is Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN. We've got lots more to talk about with my guests, Dr. Barbara and Dr. Dennis Tedlock. They're uh, here sitting with me live in the studio, and we're lucky to have them. So uh, stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Play a couple songs here and give us a chance to take a break and uh, get a glass of water or something. And then we'll give you a chance to call me and reach into your wallet or grab a pen and pull out your checkbook and uh, make a little... uh, make a little offering, as it were, to KOPN and to Radio Orbit for, um, uh, for the stuff that we try to do uh, to bring information to you guys. The number here is 1-800-895-KOPN, 895-5676. Uh, give us a call and uh, show your support, okay? We'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, this is Tori Amos with Muhammad, my friend.
5: You are the key. KOPN is a 31-year-old local tradition. Only on KOPN is there the diverse programming that keeps you in touch with local music and the national and international music and news that you want to hear. Our annual budget is a lean $260,000. Your contribution of $90 will pay for one laser printer toner cartridge. Call now, 573-874-5676 or toll free at 1-800-895-5676. Join Colors member Grow15 in supporting KOPN. Grow15 is located at 15 South 6th Street in downtown Columbia. It's a quaint and cozy restaurant. Private gatherings are available. Call now with your contribution and join Grow15 in paying our expenses and keeping KOPN's broadcast signal strong. You are the key. 573-874-5676 or toll free at 1-800-895-5676.
2: She lived on a curve in the road In an old tar paper shack On the south side of the town On the wrong side of the track Sometimes on the way into town We'd say, Mama, can we stop and give her a ride? Sometimes we did But her hands flew from her side While I'd crave to Mary Country store with a sign, tag to sign, said no L O I T E R I N G A Lounge. Underneath that sign, always congregated quite a crowd. Take a bottle, drink it down, pass it around. Take a bottle, drink it down
4: sit around a dick a paper
2: covered wall <laughs> <laughs> New newspaper covered wall and Mary rising up above it all
0: Uh, Pearl Jam with Crazy Mary from Sweet Relief, the benefit for Victoria Williams. Uh, there's some, uh, some fans here listening to KOPN that like to listen to, uh, uh, oh, what the heck is her name, her sister, uh, Lucinda Williams. Well, Victoria Williams uh, was, um, uh, died of muscular dystrophy and uh, this was a benefit CD that was put out a number of years ago called Sweet Relief. And there's just some fantastic stuff on that CD. If anybody's interested in it, go out there and uh, check it out. That one there by Pearl Jam called Crazy Mary. And all those songs were written by, uh, uh, by um, Lucinda's sister and uh, performed by other artists on that CD. So, all right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. My guests in the studio with me tonight are Dr. Barbara Tedlock and her husband, Dr. Dennis Tedlock. We're talking about uh, a number of different things. We've already been talking about women in the shamanic traditions, and uh, we've touched a little bit on some of the Mayan traditions. And uh, we're going to get a little bit further into it now. Uh, uh, right, bef- right before the break there, uh, Barbara, we were talking about blood and about the significance of blood and how it actually becomes, uh, when you look at it, uh, the basis for much of uh, uh, much of this uh, uh, this particular tradition that you're uh, that you're interested in maybe we could elaborate on that I- again uh, or, or a little bit further
3: but the feminine uh, traditions of shamanism put a lot of emphasis on blood uh, and, it, and on birthing uh, that whole part of the lifespan uh, the more masculine traditions are interested in death to rebirth uh, so what I've to do in my book is put women back into shamanism i'm not uh i'm not taking men out they're still there yeah. but i'm putting women back in and i'm putting the other half from birth to death that whole part back in and the imagery and there's a lot of imagery around blood which is specifically a feminine thing the the blood of menstruation mm-hmm. the blood of birthing and uh, the the blood is um, a central metaphor in several shamanic traditions. Uh, and the, uh, within the Mayan tradition that my husband and I were trained in, uh, the people uh, known as the K'iche' Maya of Highland Guatemala, there's about a million people who speak that particular Mayan language.
4: Okay.
3: And uh, among those people, they talk about something that's called cacha'u which means the speaking of the blood. And um, this was something that when we uh, were doing our research and then when we had been um, actually uh, selected to be trained as shamans something we never thought would happen to us uh, there was this incredible uh, discussion about how one's blood speaks and at first I remember I don't know Mm. how you think about this sentence but I remember thinking that will never happen, my blood will never speak, and I can't get initiated. Huh. What did you think?
1: Yeah, we, we uh, kept asking for descriptions. Well, what does it feel like? And we got some, uh, in fact, we can tell you what some of those were, because it might help you think about your own body. Mm-hmm. Uh, words like twitch are used, uh, mm-hmm. like tick or like a, a little tiny breeze moving across some of your body. Uh, uh, twitch. Uh, here's one example. Um, almost everybody has some point. Maybe they feel like one of their eyelids is twitching, and you put mm. your finger up there, and you feel that it actually is twitching. That's not it, but that's what it feels like. They say if you if you can actually feel a muscle jumping in some part of your body, that's that's not it. It's when it feels like something is happening. And if you want to check it out, put your hand there and and uh, you can't feel anything, but you just feel it internally, then that's, mm. that's what it is. Okay. So those are the kinds of things we were told, but we weren't mm. experiencing it yet.
3: Right. And we, we didn't think about um, what we should have thought about right away, which was chi and all the Asian systems mm. of energy in the body. Right. We, we didn't... Think about it that way. I don't know why. We thought it was something different than that and now it's very clear to us that this is a mapping of the body. Um, It's like the meridian system and it's it's a cognitive system and it's something that indeed we did both learn and once we learned it we've never forgotten it and so our bodies are still alive and they do uh, uh, we have these blood movements which we interpret uh, according to the system that the Maya taught us. But mm-hmm. but I was sure when I was being trained that yes, I I can share my dreams. I can learn to interpret dreams. Yes, I can learn the calendar. But no, I can't learn this because this is embodied. This is mm-hmm. in, in you. And I thought, no, that's where I'm going to trip up. But um, we both learned it.
0: Is is um is this something that anybody can can learn with the right instruction, or is it something that that, that that somehow is uh, uh, in other words you said before that you were selected uh, to be trained as shaman something that you were uh, that, that you were not expecting but is it because somebody recognized something in you that may in other words is there something special uh, where where it's where it's it, it, it's not it's not something that anybody can do it's something that uh, that only certain people could pull off
1: I think probably Well, maybe you can't say everybody can do Mm -hmm. everything, but... uh, Most people could. I I think most people could, because there are simple forms of it, at least, uh, like the one, probably the one you're most likely to notice in your own body if you start thinking about this. You may never have thought of it before. One of the commonest forms is to feel as if the muscle in your uh, calf has a tiny little twitch in it. And uh, some some people... uh, some lions only have that part of it, and they they haven't figured out how to feel those same sensations in all the rest of the body. Uh, and just in case uh, you're starting, maybe some of the listeners are starting to to uh, wonder if they're feeling something. <laughs> um,
3: they probably are. Yeah, the right side of the <laughs> body <laughs> is uh, yeah. is
1: male. The, the, the one in the calf means you're sensing that that somebody's coming or something is about to happen hmm. and if it's in the left calf it's uh something to do with a
0: f- female and in the right it's a man all right so, so these so these things um depending on where they op- occur in the body and depending on what side for example or whatever mm-hmm. they they don't particularly portend things that have to do with you in other words they may not be giving us a message about an illness or something like that. It may have to do with an external event or, like you say, somebody may be approaching or maybe something just happened to a family member or I don't know. uh, Is that
3: Mm -hmm.
0: uh, reasonable?
3: That's true. And uh, one thing is the front part of your body is the present into the future and the back part Uh of your body is uh, the past. Uh And um, your buttocks is the really distant past. That's something that's really hard to get back to. Wow. (laughs) So they have a a whole mapping in terms of time, space, Um, there's areas of the body that relate to um, your work, how you're doing in life, There's, there's parts of the body, movements that relate to money if you're going to succeed. And so it's a very complex right, mapping. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. So this becomes a very sophisticated, complex thing, and there's all kinds of different interactions, and it's, it, and it's more a matter of, okay, so it seems to me there's two things, perception, number one, of, of, of recognizing it, and then the biggie, understanding how to define that based on these old uh, uh, teachings. Right. Okay. Wow. Amazing. All right. So they call that speaking of the blood. Exactly. Tell me, tell me a personal experience that you've had with that since, since you thought you'd never be able to do it.
3: Okay. Let's if, you see. Have, if you have one. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, it should. happens all the time. I mean, right. it's, it's, so it's now a now daily it's event. Okay. But uh, remember when we chose in New York that bridge?
1: Oh, yeah. We were getting near New York City from the from the west, and we were right. uh, wondering, because we were going up into New England, and we were wondering, uh, uh, should we... Go all the way up to the Tappan Zee Bridge, or should we chance the Washington uh, right. Bridge and the Cross Bronx Expressway?
2: Right.
1: And uh, we both got a, a felt uh, if you feel like this kind of sensation across your shin, it means there's a blockage of some kind. <clears throat> and we both felt that. Right. And so we went up to the Tappan Zee, even though it was a it was further. Way, you know, it was out of
3: our way. It was further.
1: And we, we learned later that there had yeah. been a massive tie-up on the Cross-Brancy Expressway. Right. So we
3: made the right decision. We got the right message. So we were very impressed with that. You know, we thought, hmm. And that happens a lot to us, where our bodies will warn us of something. Well, and it's
0: it's interesting to me, too, because... And it also reminds me of, of, of another part of shamanism. Uh, but in other words, it doesn't have to be the most profound information of all time. In other words, it might just be something that's simple and helpful. Or, you know, everybody has this idea that a shaman, be he may, a male or a be she female, regardless, that, that, they're, that they're always involved in these uh, uh, highly dramatic <laughs> situations or whatever. And I think, well, you know, there are also times when they just want to find out who stole the chicken, <laughs> you yeah. know, or something like that.
3: Yeah, Shamans have everyday lives, and their bodies tell them what's going on. See, what it is, is you're placing, this is my understanding of it, you're placing your intuitions, instead of them being out there vague, you're placing them in your body. Mm. And um, at least that's how I explain it to myself. You, you know how you learn something, and then you have your own little explanations for it.
1: And the way they talk about well, you have that phrase the speaking of the blood but they'll go on and say now don't take that literally it's not the blood isn't speaking itself the blood is sending its signal your mm-hmm. body is sending these signals to you and you are you have to figure out how to put it into words right you're right, the one right. who actually you have gives to it. voice to the to the what the blood is telling you
0: you're the interpreter of that
3: message exactly right
0: all right okay well um so this becomes a question, though, in general, uh, uh, with, with, with the shamanic traditions, is that, okay, um, let, me, let me frame this correctly. The speaking of the blood to me sounds like something that uh, can happen, uh, like you say, on a daily basis, it's something that you just have to have an awareness of and you can recognize it. So it doesn't take an altered state, for example, to experience. It doesn't take an ecstatic trance, or it doesn't take uh, uh, a psychoactive compound to bring it on, or anything like that. Um, the other side of that is, and, uh, but but you're getting information. You're getting information if you if if you can see it and recognize it. Um, you also find the same thing on the on the other side of the of of it though in the trance states in the uh, psychedelic states, again, information is present and and verifiable, validated, that, that legitimate information. So on the one hand, it will be a little bit easier for people to accept the fact that, well, yeah, your body's telling you something and all you have to do is sort of recognize uh, what what that might be and then you can learn from it. It becomes a little bit more of a stretch for some people uh, to say, well, you can drink a concoction or uh, whatever, and literally come out with information. Uh, uh, and because because then the big question becomes, well, where is that information coming from, and how does it make its way from wherever it was into your world, into your mind, your brain, all that stuff. And so maybe we maybe we can talk about that. A little bit, if you if you guys would like to, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm just absolutely fascinated with uh, with these compounds that uh, not particularly for you know I'm, I I don't take it as a drug trip I don't take it as something that's recreational or anything like that I mean I'm looking at at this as a phenomenon that I can't explain uh, because there is this verifiable information that's being brought out of these states.
1: I would, you know, one comment I have right away is that, that, that it's, that, that information is just there all the time and, and you're blind, deaf, whatever to it um, most of the time. Uh,
0: is it there in you or do you think it's there somewhere out in non-local space, in field effect, quantum physics sort of way?
1: well you know the the usual psychological way of describing that you know in Jungian terms is uh, to say that so called primitive people put it all out there, and we know that it's all in here I think um, there's something wrong with that dichotomy <laughs> and
3: once again, it's a dialogue between inner and outer it's both okay. there's stuff out there and there's stuff in you
4: right
3: and uh I think that we're asleep most of the time, that we actually are kind of, we've tamped down our senses and what the psychedelics do is they just open us up to things that we've not been noticing mm-hmm. and uh, help us um, understand. I mean the word shaman, uh, it's, it's S-H-A-M is the root and that means to know, to understand knowledge understanding is what the shaman is looking for Mm. and a n is the suffix and it's like worker it's like the er thing so it's the one who does the one who knows and Mm. uh so uh, shamanism is a big information system so of course psychedelics would be important because you get more information and it it wakes you up to uh information that you've been not paying attention to
0: wow well what an interesting thing that you just made me think of, because this idea that, that, that the word shaman means that
2: the a knower.
0: The knower or something like that, uh, it is so antithetical to the Western idea of, of, of religion. For example, if we if we look at shaman, the shamanic tradition as religion, sort of, mm-hmm. well, and then compare that to the typical religions that we're used to here in the West, knowledge has virtually no place. Uh, in Western religion, in other words, everything is a dictate from above, and uh, you 're not encouraged to learn particularly you 're encouraged to believe in an abstract idea that somebody told you and shamanism to me sounds the opposite of that where it is about knowing it 's about getting more information and 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 the and the the quest for knowledge.
1: Well, there's a, an interesting thing there when you work with uh, people like the, the, the of Mayans we were working with. In fact, na- native the Native peoples of the New World uh, tell anthropologists all over the place that well we never had religion as they, what they understand religion to be until Europeans mm-hmm. got here. And what they mean is uh, this, this uh, all this stuff that's Based on indoctrination and not on experience and, and that's what they mean when they said they didn't have, have religion because it's so so uh, experience oriented
0: so it wasn't separated out it was something mm-hmm. it was something that was just mm-hmm. part of life or whatever so it sort of didn't even have a definition as religion. it seems like now religion is mm-hmm. okay now we have again this separation
1: right. Gary Snyder was we recently had a visit with Gary Snyder who spent so much time uh, in in Asia but Buddhists, uh, or some of them anyway, who are not too kind of churchy uh, are fit into this same uh, experiential thing. And he was explaining that when you when different kinds of Buddhists meet each other in Asia in odd situations, including like hiking on a path or something. They, the question they ask each other is, oh, what, not what do you believe, but what is your practice? What, did, In other words, what do you do? Uh, and pe- people ask us about our uh, uh, being trained by the Mayans in Guatemala. Do you believe that? And well, they never asked us to believe anything. They taught us how to do things, uh-huh. how, how to experience things. Right. Belief was never an issue. There's no credo, that you're, there's no place where you sign your name to uh, some list of, of laws that were, as you put it, dictated from above. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I've, I've
0: always found it interesting that if you, if you want to become a minister or you want to become a priest or something like that, well, you pretty much can. All you got to do is memorize the right words and maybe pay a few bucks to the right seminary or school or whatever and uh, do what you're told and you can walk out of there with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now you are a priest. Now you are a minister, whatever. It, and again, it's it's a social uh, ordination.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: It's an ordainment that's from a man to a man, basically. And uh, it really lacks this experiential side. Um, it seems to me that, and Barbara, maybe you could add something to this, but uh, a shaman is typically called forth almost Mm. in in many cases. Is that not correct? For example, as a child that goes Mm -hmm. through a a, a traumatic experience or a psychological difficulty or maybe a near death, an accident or something where they go, it seems like many times uh, when a person goes through something serious like that, then they sort of become, I don't know, a more viable candidate or something.
3: Right. Shamans are um, often selected by um, having had a series of different kinds of illnesses. Um, The Mayas talk about the the kinds of illnesses that shamans tend to have, one of which is uh, getting robbed all the time, losing your money, losing possessions. Uh, And (coughs) that really startled us that that would be considered an illness. Uh, Another thing is having uh, charley horses a lot. You know how if you sleep on your back sometimes... You wake up with this terrible pain and you have to like jump out of bed and walk on it. It's the only way to get rid of the pain. <laughs> uh, so uh, Charlie horses, uh, various uh, types of ailments, uh, things that make it so it's difficult for you to walk about um, on the earth like a free soul. So for instance, if you've lost all your money and whatnot, it's, it's difficult to um, be an adult yeah, so they, they have a whole series of illnesses that they that they think um, mm-hmm. could indicate it. But they also have ways of, like, looking at people. I mean, they, Dennis and I were there. Dennis was translating the sacred book, The Popal Blue. I was doing my Ph.D. research in ethnography, and they were studying us. We were figuring out who we were. Huh. Uh, we did not present ourselves as students. We did not know that we could be trained. We did not know that couples were trained together, right That'd I mean it never occurred to us, you know I mean you normally think of it as a, as a as a practice just for yourself, a mm-hmm. male or a female. Mm-hmm. so it was really quite startling to us
0: yeah there, there, there pardon me Dennis, but there there are a number of uh, examples in the book where you show how these uh, men, women, teams work mm-hmm. together as uh, and and it really is a team that the the, the the act doesn't work without both of them because exactly. one is required to do one particular thing and the other one has to translate or whatever um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that I'm not being very specific
2: but
3: well, a lot of um, people have they've noticed that there were couples and they decided usually the woman was merely an assistant and the man was the real shaman. Uh, Without uh, paying enough attention, not recognizing that the, the two parts of the task are very important. In Mongolia, we met um, Bayar Udun, a very famous woman, shaman, and her husband is also a shaman, mm. and he's her assistant. And uh, we began to realize I see, it's just, you know, in the, it's situational, it's what. Uh, what you need and when she Hmm. uh, actually goes into trance she falls and and she needs somebody to grab her or she could like break bones sure Uh, and so he's there monitoring her and also he goes around the group and he removes asks people to remove barrettes any kind of metal or glasses and the Ah, reason is that the shine from those things uh, would bother the shaman because in days of old uh Shamans didn't. It, it, there weren't glasses, and there weren't barrettes. This is pre-metal, right, uh, right. and so the the notion would be that the uh, spirits that are coming into the shamans that are from you know long ago, many thousands of years old, wouldn't be able to uh, do what they needed to do in the room if you were wearing eyeglasses like or if you had a barrette. So what he does it. is go around <coughs> to everybody and say, "Could you please take your glasses off? Could you do this or that?" Because he's doing that.
2: Wow. Yeah. Amazing.
3: And she often gets to a point where she can't really speak very much. She just cries out, ikla, ikla. And he then has to say to people what it is she's experiencing or what she's seeing. So he's actually, you know, telling us what's going on with this person who's lost the ability to speak at a certain moment. Okay.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we're we're, uh, we're at the top of the hour again. Let's, um, we'll take a break here and when we come back, maybe you can tell. Uh, a little bit more of that story of uh, Bayer Odin. That, that that was a fascinating uh, part of your book, and I'm sure Dennis has plenty to add to, to that as well. And then, um, well, we'll just take it from there, but I also I'm keep looking at the clock, and I'm going, alright, how much more time do I have? Because I want to talk about uh, I'd love to talk about the calendar. I think that's something uh, that, uh, that needs to be talked about, and that's one of the things that I haven't talked a whole lot about on this program, because I haven't felt that I've had anybody uh, uh, that um, that I could trust was giving my listeners information that I thought was mm-hmm. legitimate. And I know it's a very difficult uh, subject, and I know there are lots of different ideas about it. But anyway, uh, I know I, I have uh, some ideas that you might have some interesting things to say about the Mayan calendar. So, at any rate, uh, we'll do that. Um, uh, this is Mark Hayden. You've been listening to Radio Orbit for the last couple hours. We've got One more hour left. This is Mike and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN and uh, I'm sitting here in the studio with my guest Barbara Tedlock and her husband Dennis Tedlock, a couple of PhD anthropologists uh, from the State University of New York and we're having a conversation about uh, shamanism and the feminine and uh, the ancient Maya and lots of other things that we're touching on here. So we're going to get right back into it and uh, oh by the way that was a woven hand with a song called Speaking Hands. And uh I hope you all like that too. And one other uh, reminder, you got another fifty-five minutes uh to uh alleviate your guilt because at two oh five when you haven't called me, you're gonna feel really bad, especially when I see you out, like I told you, I'll know. So uh uh five seven three eight seven four five six seven six or one eight hundred eight nine five Give us a call and uh, let me know you support this program and you support KOPN. Uh, Anything is appreciated. And uh, also uh, to Kyle. Uh, Kyle Cook uh, just called a little while ago and uh, made a pledge. And, um, Kyle, I appreciate that very much. And uh, forget the T-shirt or mug that you wanted as your your bonus. I got much better stuff than that, so call me back, all right? All right, um, uh, let's see. Let me change gears here. All right, so we're talking about uh, uh, about shamanism. We've been talking about the Maya. Um, we, I mentioned before the break, you guys, that I wanted to talk about the calendar, but maybe not quite yet. Um, we've got a little bit of time left. Maybe we can close out uh, with that. But um, uh, I just began thinking about uh, uh, the creative and about art and dance and music and poetry and this sort of thing. And um, people may be surprised... To hear that there may be a connection between the uh the creative and and shamanism is that something we might uh, we might talk about barbara
3: oops we the original um artists were and are and um when if you've ever been in a shamanic seance it is a fantastic uh multimedia performance and uh it's it's stunning uh, when we were in mongolia And we watched these shamans perform. You know, shamanism was outlawed by the communists. Hmm. And um, it wasn't until 1999 that uh, Mongolians felt uh, safe enough uh, from the end of the communist era that they opened up all their outside shrines. And we were there for the opening of shrines and for the incredible shamanic performances. Uh, there's, uh, there, there's wrestling, there's horse racing, all kinds of things that shamans are involved in, uh, as well as drumming and dancing and singing. And uh, the, the drumming that shamans do are, are, is very sophisticated. It's uh, not the simple kind of drumming that Michael Herner has invented for, uh, for New Age shamanism. It's very monotonous, two-beat uh, the, when you hear shamans uh, in uh, Central Asia or, um, or Russia, Mongolia drumming, it's um, many, many different sounds and they talk about the sounds as the galloping of, of horses uh, they really, and they picture their drums uh, as, um, as horses. And that they ride the drum into the sky right. so there's a real sense of music being central to shamanism mm-hmm. and the creative dimension being very important
2: wow
0: now uh, the, when you mentioned mongolia was was this uh, again when you had the exp- the experience with bayar odun
3: yeah with bayar odun bayar and uh, uh, there was a man there too uh, bamba and this guy is a direct lineal descendant uh, from Genghis Khan's mother's clan. It turns out that shamanism comes yeah. down through the female line in Mongolia. And it comes through this, this, the clan. And that was the clan of the mother of Genghis Khan.
2: Holy cow.
3: And uh, he can actually trace his relatives all the way back. It's really quite stunning. And uh, shamanism survived in Mongolia by Uh, people from shamans lineages getting educated. They went to medical school, became Mm. MDs, Mm -hmm. they became professors of languages Mm -hmm. and and various things, Uh, and they learned uh, how to have it um, survive, and then when it could come out into the public, they did, and they invited the media, they invited uh, radio and television to come out and um, be there for the public, Uh, unveiling of shamanism once again live and well. The the
0: return from the back room. Right. Wow remarkable. You know uh, this story reminds me very much of uh, the Lakota Sundance which which was the same thing was having was made illegal all the ceremonies were pushed underground and and they and they kept them alive uh, through there were changes that had to be made certainly and I think you even document some of a similar thing when when these things are pushed underground because of repression or uh, political pressure or, or, or whatever it might be, um, they've somehow these traditions have survived. And uh, I guess the, the, the question that comes into my mind right away then, from, from, in, in your opinion, why has this happened? In, in other words, it's, it, it has nothing to do with democracy. There's nothing, to, I mean, it seems to cross ideological uh, boundaries. But it seems like wherever we have come across uh, indigenous cultures that have uh, shamanic uh, traditions, this sort of thing, that regardless of way that where they show out, show up, they are uh, squashed or repressed by whoever it is that may be in power in that place. And
2: what's it's going on?
0: What?
3: Shamanism, well, it's the oldest religion. It's the oldest healing system in the world. So it's the root of all of and it's intertwined with other religions, so there's a lot of um, uh, combinations like Christianity combined with shamanism I mean Jesus Christ was a shaman that's very <laughs> clear very I mean clear. just think of the miracles that, you know all the different things that I he's agree involved fully. in and uh, it's, so it's intertwined with Islam there's a lot of shamanic uh, shamanic elements in Islam and uh so there's a, there's a mixture that 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 goes on and Uh, It seems that shamanism doesn't stand alone all by itself as an isolate in many places anymore. It is mixed together with with other things. Uh, And I think it's because of repression.
1: One of the things that happens uh, again and again is that um, people come in uh, who are interested in international development issues, missionaries, more secular kinds of missionaries who are trying to bring about technological change or get people enmeshed in the world money economy. Mm-hmm. All those kinds of people come in and, and and medical professionals and they think that people like the shamans are going to be in competition with them or are going to hmm. directly oppose them. And uh, we, we ran into that in uh, Mongolia. We ran into a, uh, a, a British obstetrician who was certain that that his great enemy in Mongolia was going to be all the midwives who he assumed were all quacks who knew nothing about childbirth, never Mm -hmm. mind their thousands-of-year-old tradition. And the fact is that shamans, uh, if a shaman runs into uh, Mongolia or any other place, runs runs into an illness that they don't know how to cure, but they have some reason to believe that uh, Western medicine knows how to do something about one of the pieces of advice that shaman may give to a patient is to go to a physician. They're no. not opposed to... Uh, it's the physicians who see them in competition.
2: Right, right, right. Uh,
1: it's, the, it's the physician's problem. It's the missionary's problem. It's it's all these outsiders' problems. The, the uh, shamans are not opposed to knowing everything possible there is to know about the world.
3: Oh, they, they love to know as much as they can about right. Western medicine. They like to blend it right. together. It, it,
0: it, that's just a further
1: they
3: extension of their
0: knowledge. They just want to know more about that just as well. So
3: they're truly holistic healers. Mm-hmm. They, they're truly interested right. in putting everything right. together, whereas there's a tendency with Western medicine not to go in that direction.
0: All right, So so what we're seeing in medicine is sort of being... Uh, blown up and expanded throughout the whole thing in other words it appears that this is a very threatening
4: uh,
0: sort of idea to the to the powers that be or to the uh, it, it, the patriarchy apparently yeah. i mean that 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 seems to be where it goes to this idea of male dominance hierarchies uh, that are no different today than the arboreal <laughs> rainforest that we <laughs> rolled out of you know how many years ago and it you know, uh, there's another question that I'd like to ask you. This, this, this whole uh, nostalgic idea of the garden uh, that, that we have, my, my impression now, I just mentioned, you know, that, that it seems to be that we're caught up in the middle of a major patriarchy, that we are in the midst of this male dominance hierarchy that is uh, uh, identified primarily by boundary definition and ownership and this sort of thing. And it really does remind me of our old monkey ways sort of how how back in the forest that was the same thing we were eating fruits and stuff but there was the alpha male and uh, he pretty much grabbed the female of his choice whoever he thought was suitable and most of the time by force and uh, then set up his sort of lieutenants below him to manage the rest of the gang and 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 that and that was it and and it seems like i mean we may have put a nicer mask on it now but it seems like we're we're still right there so my question is was there a time in between where this wasn't going on where we actually did have some balance where we actually did have this idea of male and woman and nature and all sort of working together and maybe this is the mythical garden this is the the what we're all longing to get back to maybe is that make any sense?
3: It's fascinating, you know. I I wish that there were. I'm not sure that there was. What do you think, Dennis, was there a time? Oh, you mean, like uh, there was a...
1: Well, the narrative, though, uh, the the problem with that is, if you hypothesize a time when, uh, well, the the most famous example was, you know, a a notion that there was an evolutionary stage when human beings were matriarchal. And then that was succeeded by guess what? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but but in that narrative, then uh, it becomes a progress toward the patriarchy. And I know things have gone up and down in human societies in terms of women's roles. I mean, there are mm-hmm. all kinds of paradoxes. I mean, there there are certain Islamic societies in in which uh, oddly women have freedoms that they don't have in this society, despite all the stuff we hear about that. So, you know, it, it's hard to uh, to construct a. Yeah, you know, the specific cases though in in your book where, uh, what is it the Weecho, no, the Kuna. How uh, how men stole shamanism. Oh,
3: it's the Weecho. Uh, uh It's really uh, quite remarkable. Uh, where that actually um, a male shaman did a drawing and told the story of how shamanism was stolen from women in his society. Really, uh, and then there's another there's another male shaman who doesn't who says the first shaman simply was a man. Uh, it, it, it's a fascinating kind of problem, you know,
4: hmm. uh,
3: where where you've got different people telling somewhat different stories right, and right. who knows why what the what the reason is uh, that he would uh, talk about it in that particular way and uh, if we have all this thing about the deities in the sky being male and the deities on earth being mm-hmm. female mm-hmm. mother goddess and whatnot mm-hmm. well if you scratch that you'll discover that no in the sky there are lots of female deities and there are male earth deities mm. so there is a again, you so know once again we can get a balance right um I, I wish there were a time when there was a balance or so we could look at it but maybe it's what we're working toward mm. maybe this is where we're going to get to right i don't right. think we've ever been there i don't know dennis do you agree Have we oh ever been? Wow, interesting yeah I th- interesting. this may be our future evolution mm. Uh, And I do see good signs of it. My students are very different people today than they were as recently as 10 years ago. There's been a major shift in the past 10 years. Uh, The guys are not afraid of the feminine. The women are not afraid of the masculine.
1: Uh,
3: So that's quite fascinating.
1: Or if uh, there are or at least were some uh, tribal societies with it. Well, I'm sure there were uh, that were pretty much balanced we were not in a position to even uh, recognize that uh, for what it was because mm-hmm. most of the, the uh, early field workers were guys mm-hmm. and they go in and, and they talk, they to, talk the to the
3: guys. And then that's the uh, society.
1: And that's the story they get. Uh, so uh,
0: so we don't know. Right. Well, okay, uh, a similar uh, question or along the same lines uh, what about language? There I, it, it seems that, that over the years that I've come across references here and there that make me think that it's possible that there may have been a time where language wasn't as complicated as it is now, where maybe there was communication between, and maybe it has to do with the fact that there weren't people all over every corner of the planet that, uh, either. But... I'm I guess I always wonder, how did we end up with all of these different languages when we all evolved from uh, the same uh, group and from the same place? and uh, was there a time when we all spoke the same language, I guess?
1: And I suppose if if uh, if it's really true, this uh, mitochondrial story mm-hmm. tracing back to somewhere yeah, yeah, and it may or it may small not be, I, I, like
4: yeah. a
1: small group of people. Sure, they would have all been known how to speak to each other, but uh, language like uh, languages is at least as changeable as the gene pool is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when populations get separated from another uh, their their languages drift. Uh, you, the language used to talk talk about that as linguistic drift. Language just wants to change. Uh, so
0: so the glaciations, for example, they move in, they separate the population, and they... And then they re. And of course, that's probably the best way to advance a diversity. Anyway, is to is to is to breed a population together, then split them up, and then mix them again, and then split them up. So, okay, I can I can I can handle that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One
1: of the saddest things that's happening in the world today that that doesn't get much talked about. Uh, is the reduction of linguistic mm. diversity. Oh, man. And uh, there are two schools of thought you've got to watch out for. There, There's a school of thought among certain linguistics linguists that they don't even realize they're reinventing their own version of social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Darwinism. Mm-hmm and the way they tell the story that the languages are dying, that are dying out, are are dying out because they, there's something intrinsic about them that just makes them unfit for survival. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in fact, of course, the the great colonial languages and the bearers of them have conducted a systematic warfare Mm -hmm. of extermination Mm -hmm. against all of these local native languages uh, and have been doing so for hundreds of years. So it's not, and, and right. that have nothing to do with the virtues of the language as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's a, uh, but what interests me today, uh, you know, all this talk about the reduction of biological diversity of fewer plant species, fewer fewer animals, why these great human, why there's not more attention to these great human
0: uh, treasures? Oh gosh, you know what? Barbara and I were talking earlier, and I said that I, I, I used to be a snob, and I used to say, well, if, 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 if you read a book that's, that's less than a hundred years old, it's not worth reading. And if you read a book that was originally written in English, it's not worth reading. you know uh, I, I've since changed my idea, but I, and, and it was sort of a, sort of more of a guideline than a rule. But, uh, but regardless, when you pick up an old book the language alone will blow you away if you haven't done it and you know if it's for, for somebody who's been reading you know current material their whole life or whatever just the language alone uh, is enough to make you go wow something really different was going on uh, back then and I think I see you really frustrate me with this you know that see this the, the, the destruction of not only these indigenous languages and it breaks my heart to see the, the knowledge that's lost with the language. And my Lakota friends in particular I, are, are trying so hard uh, to keep their language alive. And there are very few young people that even care about it anymore, you know, that want to learn it. And when they do find one that does, they get very excited, <laughs> you know. But, and then I see, like, our president on the television and, and take a word that is such a powerful word, like nuclear. Mm-hmm. And bastardize that word and, and make a joke out of it and depotentiate it and turn it into something that people now can joke about. And I believe it's by I, th- I believe it's by design. I don't believe that that's the way. I believe that he, if he were trained to say nuclear, he could say it just fine. But I think that this idea that you bring up about the the, the limiting and the destruction of language is an agenda. I believe that it's that that, that, that it's something that. Uh, that's by design, and I think we see it all around us, and it's really frustrating to me. At any rate, uh, well, we've got 35 minutes, so we're going to play one more song. Uh, we'll take a breather and get our uh, compass reset for the last uh, segment of the show here, and uh, we'll uh, come back and do that. Okay, you guys? So, uh, that's Yachai from Sweet Mother Mercy, and that song is called Mama. And it's a song about a vine that grows in the Amazon called Banisteriopsis copy, I think. And it's a very uh, powerful plant. And uh, we've talked about that in this program a little bit. And uh, anyway, uh, this is Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, we've got about 30 minutes left, probably 20 minutes, 25 or so left with uh, Barbara and Dennis Tedlock. Uh, from your perspective and from your experience, what uh, what you guys make of what's going on.
1: Well, the most vital part of the calendar today uh, is the part that's most different from Western time reckoning. In uh, a few places in uh, Mexico and in 60 different towns in Guatemala, one of the calendars they follow is, is a 260-day cycle where mm-hmm. 13 numbers turn over and mm-hmm. against against uh, 20-day names, so each day has a has a number and name. And uh, that two two hundred sixty days there's a lot of reasons behind. You
3: know, uh, well, one of which relates to uh, uh, when a woman realizes uh, that she's pregnant until she gives birth. According to the Maya, is two hundred sixty days. Mm. Uh, Western physicians say it's like two hundred eighty one or whatnot. Uh, but they're interested in when. The woman recognizes it, and you can't recognize that you're pregnant for a couple weeks. It takes right. you a while to, right. to be aware of it. So they, they think of it as a human gestation calendar. Oh. And also the calendar uh, is connected to uh, agriculture, to uh, corn, mm. and uh, it's, there is a variety of corn. That they allow to grow exactly 260 days, that's grown in many uh, areas of Guatemala. Hmm. And the way they get it to come in on time is you, what's called doblar, you turn, uh, you actually bend the uh, stalk down so that the um, ear of corn is, is uh, facing the earth and more juice is coming into it to, to force it to. Be ready in turn 60 days. So the day that you sow the corn is the same day that you're going to reap it, then, in the turn 60-day calendar. Because it takes turn 60 days to be in exactly the same day. Right, right, right,
2: right.
0: All right, so you have, uh, okay, it's 13 times 20, right?
3: 260. Okay. That's how you get that particular Uh calendar. Okay. And this is a very important calendar to them. They had a 365-day calendar as well, but it got mixed up in our 200 our 365-day calendar. I mean, it, it was too close. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, now there are communities that still have um, certain segments uh, of, of the calendar. So, for instance, uh, in the town that we were trained in, in Momostenango, uh, uh, we're in the year uh, six, eek, uh, and uh, that's a it's a year that's um, full of wind, powerful storms. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the type of year and it came New Year was uh, uh, February 23rd and so we're in that particular uh, year and uh, today the the name on the 260 day calendar is Ten Kat Uh, and uh, Kat uh, means Katik means to burn Uh, it's a day of um, making offerings doing various things
1: and it's also uh, that 11, con, uh, 11 con. Lions don't switch the day over at midnight. The days overlap, so we're still, we're the, the 10 con belongs more to, to Monday and 11 con belongs more to what we call Tuesday. But they're, right now as we sit here and then we got the fact that, let's say, sun time is closer to a little bit past midnight right now, or midnight plus, what, 38 minutes, whatever. Um, so we're right in between these two days, and the, the day cut, the influence of yesterday, what's becoming yesterday, it has, has to do with burdens and paying your debts, and, uh, Right,
3: this is the day to pay your debts. a uh, good day to make a There bread?
0: you go, Five seven three eight seven four five six <laughs> seven six. pay your radio bill okay um well uh, that that interests me again this idea that the days don't sort of just stop and then a new day begin they sort of flow into one another and again intuitively that makes more sense because life flows It, it doesn't just stop at midnight and then begin anew and tomorrow's not completely different than today it has many of the vapor trails of today and uh and a big uh, thanks uh, to uh, uh, to Carl Thames and uh, Carl. We'll have to get some information from you to uh, to get that book to you, but I appreciate it. And uh, Casey's got your number or whatever, so uh, so we get that book. So congratulations to Carl Thames. He's got a wonderful new book uh, from uh, from Barbara Tedlock called The Woman in the Shaman's Body: Restoring the Feminine in Religion and Medicine. So, I'm
3: finding it right now.
0: All right, and okay. it's uh, Carl. Veins, th just like the river. <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, okay. So, so, so beyond the fact that the calendar is simply um, another way of keeping track of time, I guess, um, and there seems to be a great interest around the calendar with regard to apocalyptic scenarios and eschatological ideas, and the fact that. Uh, uh, 2012, I guess, is sort of the buzz date. Everybody's talking about December 21st of 2012 or the winter solstice. And there have been lots of different authors now over the last few years that have written uh, this or that, that it's going to be a day of cataclysm or that it's going to be a day of rebirth or that it's really just going to be a regular day and nothing's going to happen. Or, uh, what? Uh, I guess I have to put you on the spot. What do you guys make of the whole 2012 uh, scenario?
1: Well, with, you know, we're always asking ourselves, well, what would the Mayans think? Uh, since the contemporary Maya don't do the so-called long count anymore, but if if the ancient calendar priests who did this calendar were around, what would they be talking about? And they would be asking themselves the same kinds of questions you just asked. I imagine they would be arguing, you know, just how big a deal is this? Hmm. Uh, but the the kings
4: uh,
1: and Sometimes queens uh, put up monuments advertising the fact that they'd lived through uh, uh, a certain number of cartoons, which are 20-year periods. So uh, you could have uh, someone boasting that they were a four-cartoon lord or lady, mm-hmm. meaning not that they'd lived four times 20 years, but that that their life spread over in through four different. Time transition. So if you had Mayan lords alive uh, on December 21st, 2012, which is when this transition uh, takes place, they would probably put up uh, the, the, here the, the big period of time is called a picton, and it's 13 t- times 144,000 days. Uh, and that they would be advertising them that they were two pictoon lords because they lived in two different pictoons. Mm-hmm. They would okay. be emphasizing okay. being on both sides of the transition—not that everything ended or everything began, but that they uh, their their lives went went across this uh, this big boundary. One thing that is interesting uh, to speculate about is how uh, when they. When the Mayans calculated this particular cycle, uh, it is interesting that they they projected it forward to end on uh, on the on the winter solstice in uh, 2012, and at a time when uh, it does happen to be a time when on that date the sun will be right in the middle of uh, of the part of the Milky Way they call the Black Rift, the Black Road, mm-hmm. uh, the Crossroads. Uh, in Sagittarius, where, where the path of the sun, moon, and planet crosses the Milky Way, it crosses it twice, and one of those places in, is in uh, Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. So you may have been thinking about that too, uh, projecting uh, forward. But the sun is already there, so it's not
0: a as big a deal as some some, some yeah, people,
1: people. Already have made in
3: 2012, it. in some mm-hmm. way. But right? Right, right.
0: Again, again, it's this idea yeah. that things don't just happen. And a snap it's a right. slow transition in and out of these different phases and things well uh, we, we are living in an, in an interesting time though for sure too and there's a lot a lot of different things that are going on and there does seem to be and let me ask you this too with regard to that it seems to be that there is sort of a resurgence or a revival of archaic ideas and and these ideas of shamanism and 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 the, the roots of our religions and the roots of our of our our species and our ancestors and people seem to be coming back to this uh, I you know the the scientist in me says yeah, 2012 it's going to come and go you know but gosh something in me says man it feels about right time wise it seems like there are many different things that I see right now and I've, I've mentioned before I'm sort of a generalist and I look at all kinds of different things and man almost in every area of endeavor that i look at there are either astounding changes that are taking place for the positive that are actually that are, that are remarkable and things that it would literally seem like magic or dreams or something to people and at the same time we're seeing the opposite of that happen and, and it seems like regardless there are just a whole lot of unsustainable situations going on uh all around and gosh this whole idea of something big coming, some big change or some big epistemological something. I don't know.
3: Well, for the first time in history, um, Mayan shamans have begun to communicate on the Internet. And these are not um, new age shamans. These are elders. Hmm. And they've been uh, they've begun to talk about, they predicted the tsunami that scared them to death that they had predicted it. And so then they began to realize um, that they and then their next prediction was some mudslides which happened Mm. like hmm, two weeks later. yeah and so they had like a series of predictions and now they're beginning to speak out and say you know we're in a very turbulent very scary time right now and they just want to get the message out right and uh that uh, this is not a good time and that people have to do something to stop these things and they don't know what they can do except to pray mm-hmm. uh to be different toward the earth to be different toward the sky uh, and so they're beginning to communicate and these emails are coming through and it's, it's really quite quite interesting um that they have chosen um to communicate with people
0: right and to uh and again a, another testament to uh the walking the walk mm-hmm. of the shaman in other words they're not afraid of the new technology these guys right. walk right in and say and again as barbara explained this is not your new age
3: no.
0: 25 year old shaman right these no. are these are
3: these are elders
0: elders and communities
3: and they they say we've got to communicate with the world
0: and they say there's a new way to communicate let's embrace it and try to figure it out and use it
3: just as the sapatistas use the internet to fight their battle and yeah. they used it very very, very
0: smartly yeah
3: yeah so we're in a different we're in a different time that way it's interesting
0: we sure are and this idea You know, we were talking about uh, the psychedelic experience before, Mm -hmm. and um, I've had this sort of revelation personally that the the Internet is sort of what, I don't know if I coined it or not, but I call it a Mm. neo-psychedelic because pretty much Mm. the things that happen when you're exposed to the Internet can be analogous to what happens on a, uh, on a psychedelic voyage, for example. And it may, it may seem like a stretch to people out there who are listening who think, oh, the Internet's no big deal, uh, you know, and it, sure, it's no big deal if you live in Manhattan and you've been exposed to it and you know what's going on. But if you're a child in Sri Lanka or something or in North Korea or a place like that, and all of a sudden you get access to the web, it is a complete explosion of your world. It, 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 it brings, talk about boundary dissolution talk about removing boundaries I mean that's what the web is all about it is the removal of boundaries and it seems to me like it's almost this the upload of human consciousness everything that we know all of our history everything now is going good bad and ugly and both mm-hmm. legitimate stuff and sure we have to sift through all that right. and try to figure out what to make of it but it sure seems like the web to me is a lifeboat perhaps and it, and it is a way to get I, I've believed for a long time that you know, that language is the problem, is that if we end up if we do end up blowing this place to bits, it will be because our language failed us, because we weren't able to communicate with one another. We weren't good enough at linguistic intent, you know, to get across what we mean and uh and the web to me seems like a way to break through some of those some of those. John, yeah, when well, you
3: agree with the Mayan elders? They feel that if they can just get their message across, if they can just speak to us, they could make a difference.
0: Wow. Well, that makes me feel really good, to be honest. Makes me Quite feel remarkable. really good. Remarkable. Absolutely.
1: For me, the most remarkable moments on the web—they don't happen often enough—is when you are exchanging messages with somebody in real time. <clears throat> you didn't plan it that way, but. You, you send off an email and the response comes back, you know, 30 seconds later. Right,
0: they happen to be sitting there.
1: Right exactly. Right,
4: yeah.
3: Well, but you know, yeah. The, the Mongolian shamans that I was talking about, um, Bamba George, this guy who is direct lineal descendant from Genghis Khan's mother's clan, huh. yeah. he has a Gur, which is a circular tent in the middle of Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital city. In that Gur, he has uh, a computer and a telephone. And if you've ever met him and you know him, he gives you his, um, his um, email address, and he will uh, actually work with you, but only in real time. Uh-huh. So, and it's 12 hours different from here. So it, it, it would be, like right now, it's almost two o'clock in the afternoon in Mongolia. And it, he, he would be, you know, this is a time when he's awake, and if you're awake, you could communicate um, with him. But you have to have met him. You can't be somebody who's never met him. Uh, but then you can get through to him in real time. Uh, but he won't do it when you send an email in the middle of the night and and, and when it doesn't connect to him.
2: Wow. Well, I tell another you Another Internet story. Another amazing
0: <laughs> thing. And, again, the, 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 uh, the technology, you know, technology in and of itself, yeah, it's not good or bad or whatever. It just is, and it and it can be utilized in very nasty ways, and but also some really astounding ways too. So uh, it does sort of seem like we're on that razor blade, this sort of balancing between I don't know Armageddon and paradise or something. Uh,
3: it's exciting. It
0: sure is. I tell you what, what a time to be alive to see all these things happening, and uh, and. And to be able... And, you know, that's one of the things that breaks my heart is the pe- people that don't... You know, ignorance is bliss, is it's said. Uh, but it's not. Or <laughs> uh, maybe it is. I don't know. But there's so much to know and so much to talk about and so much going on that uh, it's just a, a, great, a great time to be doing it. And it's such a great opportunity for me to get to spend time with people like you all. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, I just uh, couldn't be more pleased about it. So let's... Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap things up here, unfortunately. Uh, I got five more dollars to go before I get my goal, my goal by the way, you guys. Five dollars. So get one person out there and call and get me over the hump. Uh, 573-874-5676. And um, that's the last time I'm going to give out that phone number. And, hey, stick around. The booty man's going to be coming in in just a few minutes to play some music and talk uh, talk with you as well. So anyway um barbara and dennis i give you a second here to make your last comment but thank you so much for being here i can't tell you how much i've appreciated it and uh it's been um uh an enlightening evening as i imagined that it would be and i'll make sure that this uh we're, we're recording this whole thing we'll get it up on the web in the next few days and let people know it's out there and we'll get a lot more listens over the web i'm sure so
3: great thanks for inviting us it's really terrific.
1: Thanks, and you out there, th- think about how mm-hmm. your hand feels and, and ask, uh, you, the bottom of the foot is also the same uh, uh, okay. part of the body for these purposes, except you can't pick up the telephone with your foot. And, uh, well, maybe. well, maybe well somebody, some people can. can, some people are able. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ask yourself, why isn't your hand moving over there to... Uh,
0: Yes, I'm visualizing a lot of hands right now moving towards phones, okay. and uh, but you got to call in the next five minutes because we're about out of here. So, okay, we'll um, we'll call it quits at that. And again, my guests have been Barbara and Dennis Tedlock, a couple of wonderful, uh, brilliant, and uh, remarkable anthropologists and uh, doctors of anthropology, actually from the State University of New York at Buffalo and uh, we've been fortunate enough to have them tonight on Radio Orbit and uh, hopefully down the road here as, uh, as their lives continue to get interesting, which I'm sure they will. We'll have to uh, do this again. And we'll, uh, uh, I'm sure we have plenty more to talk about. I could sit here all night, quite frankly, and talk. So, uh, But uh, they won't let me do that. There are other people that want to get in this chair and do their thing, so we're going to let them do that. In the meantime, uh, stick around for uh, Curtis will be in, and next week come on back uh i'll have dr carlos castro uh, on the air and he's a phd astrophysicist and we'll be talking about string theory and lots of other interesting things um and that's it okay radio orbit see you next week thanks again one more time to barbara and dennis tedlock and uh thanks to you guys for listening and to all of you who donated for the show tonight this is the tragically hit. this is from day for night it's called scared we'll see you later